Thank you, Michael, for that wonderful prayer. And uh, thank you, Henry and Una and Justin, for leading us in worship this morning. Just give me one second. Let me get my notes here. Great. A few months ago, uh, during Pastor George's absence, on two occasions, he gave me the opportunity to, on two Friday nights, to teach. He usually gives us the freedom to teach on whatever topic we want from the Word of God. So I thought it'd be a great use of my Philippians commentary to start a mini-series there. So this morning, we will continue um, to draw from the well. Uh, the well, as it were, of that wonderful epistle. And uh, if you want to follow the previous sermons that we preached there, you can go online and find them. I've titled the sermon, The Wool of the Believer in Sanctification. The Wool of the Believer in Sanctification. With that said, open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And the scriptural scope for this morning is on verses 12 and 13, but we'll read that entire section as one unit. Philippians chapter 12, verses 12 to 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. A common misconception about this text, or on this text, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is that Christ by his work, by his atoning work on the cross, made salvation merely a possibility, and the believer has then to work at, or work up to, or work for his salvation in order to make it a reality in his life. That view of this verse stands, obviously, in stark contrast with the doctrine of justification by faith and the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works. I must also clarify that the proper interpretation of this text is not in any shape or form contradictory to the doctrine of justification by faith and the gospel of salvation by grace. As we've been studying the book of Galatians with Pastor George, we have seen the beauty and the splendor of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works. We have learned thus far that the Judaizers in Galatia, in their pursuit to discredit Paul and his gospel of grace, which he received from Christ himself on the road to Damascus, have introduced a counterfeit gospel, a damning gospel of faith plus works. Paul himself says clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 4, turn your Bible with me there, 
Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Listen to this. By grace you have been saved. And again, down in verse 8, look with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So Paul is unequivocally laying out the means by which the believer is passed from death to life, transferred from the kingdom of the children of rebellion to the kingdom of God's dear son, liberated from the shackles of the damning wages of sin to freedom of God's beloved son. And all of this, listen to this, all of this is authored by God, planned by God, executed by God, fulfilled by God, and will be made complete by God in subjective glorification of the believer. This, brothers and sisters, is the nature of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Not one that is earned by men, or worked out by men, or worked up to by men, but it is all of God. All of God. John MacArthur, in his book titled Essential Christian Doctrine, says the following regarding soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. He says this um, regarding this doctrine. He says, and I quote, God is a Savior who has acted in saving grace to redeem from sin and death those who would believe. His plan of redemption began in eternity past as God the Father set his electing love on undeserving sinners determining to rescue them from the fall and the deserved consequences of their disobedience. The Father carried out this plan by sending the Son to accomplish redemption for those he had chosen, and then by sending the Spirit to apply redemption for those he had chosen. End quote. This is the full scope of the Trinitarian picture of salvation, whereby the Father sent the Son, whom accomplished redemption by his atoning work through his penal substitution on the cross for those whom the Father had chosen and given to the Son. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, applies this magnanimous work of redemption to those whom the Father had chosen. The entire Godhead was busy, so to speak, in planning orchestrating from eternity past to bring about throughout redemptive history the salvation which we now possess in Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, believe me when I tell you, the only role we played and could have ever played in this whole enterprise of salvation is the sinning part. That's it. That's the only role we play. We bring the sin and God provides the salvation. Nothing more, nothing less. Louis Burkhoff, in his book, Systematic Theology, gives us a lot more insight regarding the effect of the atonement, the effect of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, as far as the sinner is concerned. He says on page 392, the atonement not only made salvation possible for the sinner, but actually secured it. The atonement, meritoriously, secured the application of the work of redemption to those for whom it was intended, and thus rendered the complete salvation certain. 
So he's saying that our salvation is not simply a mere possibility, but a secured reality. It is not something that is made possible whereby the sinner has to then obtain by some works, some liturgical sacraments, some law, some pilgrimage, or good deeds. Not at all. Our salvation is complete and secured in Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for it, work up to it, or work at it. It, the atonement that is, secured for those for whom it was made. Berkhoff explains the extent of that secured reality of our salvation. It says, number one, a proper judicial standing through justification. That includes the forgiveness of sin, the adoption of children, and the right to an eternal inheritance. I'm going to say it again. Number one, a proper judicial standing through justification, which includes the forgiveness of sin, the adoption of children, and the right to an eternal inheritance. It is the whole nine yards. Nothing is left to be done by the sinner that can help him gain or work for that salvation, except, as I said, the sinning part that they do, whose wages is eternal death. I hope you're seeing more and more that Paul cannot mean here in this text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that the Philippians ought to work for their salvation or work to gain their salvation. It simply cannot mean that. Louis Burkhoff goes on to say in that same section about the secured reality of the believer's salvation, he says this, the union of believers with Christ through regeneration and sanctification comprises the gradual mortification of the old man and the gradual putting on of the new man created in Christ Jesus. That is what theologians call progressive sanctification. Let me say it again. He says, secondly, in view of our secured reality in salvation, he says the, the union of the believers with Christ, or the union of believers with Christ, rather, through regeneration and sanctification, comprises the gradual mortification, that's putting to death the old man, the gradual mortification of the old man, and the gradual putting on of the new man created in Christ Jesus. That's progressive sanctification. Even the sanctification process of the believer is caused by, or is the effect of, or the fruit of the atonement and sacrifice made by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Finally, Burkhoff says, justification leads right on to sanctification. In those two verses, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we find multiple key principle, principles that explain the nature of the Christian life and the believer's pursuit of sanctification. And there are four key principles I want us to see in this text that lays out the standard of holy living and a pattern of sanctification that is monergistically what by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and anchored in Christ Jesus. And in the end, I hope we might become those who conduct ourselves worthy in a manner, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Four key principles. So bear with me. I'm going to say them twice. I'm going to say them, say them a, little, a little fast the first time and the second time. I'm going to slow down a bit so you can write down. So you're taking notes. The number one key principles I want us to see here is 
First, sanctification is the consequence of the gospel. Sanctification is the consequence of the gospel. Number two, sanctification is the fruit of a spiritual bond of love. Sanctification is the fruit of a spiritual bond of love. Key principle number three, sanctification is an act of consistent obedience. Sanctification is an act of consistent obedience. Key principle number four, our last one, sanctification is based upon rigorous effort, meticulous effort. Sanctification is based upon rigorous effort. Let's look at verse 12 again. Let's look at verse 12 again. Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Let's stop right there. William Varner, in his commentary on this particular verse, says that the first two words, so then, form a compound Greek word, haste, which also appears in Philippians chapter 1, verse 13. If you look at it, you don't have to look at it now. You can write it down and look at it later. It appears in Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, as so that, in Philippians 4, verse 1, as therefore. It is a conjunction that appears each time at the beginning of a new unit of thought that initiates a statement of consequence of what was said before. Say that again. It is a conjunction that appears, the so then, or the so that, or the therefore. It is a conjunction that appears each time at the beginning of a new unit of thought that initiates a statement of consequence of what was said before. In the King James, if you have a King James Version, that word is translated as wherefore. In the ESV, it is translated as therefore. So Paul, in a way, he is connecting the different parts of the chapter so that the Philippians know and understand that their life of sanctification, their pursuit of holiness, must be a consequence of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul already told them how they ought to live because of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Paul commends them to live a gospel-driven life, whether he's here with them or remain absent. It's as if Paul mirrored that same exact vein of thought again by reiterating the same idea in chapter 2, verse 12. Listen again to chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, look at that, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is almost the same, the same exact idea. Paul is connecting and telling them that the life of sanctification is a consequence of the gospel. Paul is also connecting the sanctification of the believer with the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most direct or the most, um, the most newer uh, passages from verse 12 is verses 11, 10, 9, 8, and so on and so forth of chapter 2. 
So Paul is connecting that again. He's connecting it directly with the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This life of holiness, this pursuit of sanctification, must be modeled after Christ as he humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death. Paul's description of Christ's humiliation gets repeated here in verse 12 as well. But first look at chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, Being found, that is Christ, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so now Paul comes to verse 12 and say to, and say to the Philippians, So then, my beloved, consequently, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, go on working out your salvation in fear and trembling, obeying just like Christ did, all the way to the point of death. So you see, Paul is telling the Philippians, and ultimately us this morning, your life of sanctification must be a consequence of the gospel and also modeled after the example of the humiliation and obedience of Jesus Christ, our Lord, all the way to the point of death. He prefaced the most extreme circumstance of obedience and the lowliest of lows when it comes to humiliation. And he tells the Philippians, verse, first in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says this, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was this way of thinking? Said, who, although, verse 6, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's the, that's the humiliation, him putting on human nature, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself all the way down to the point of death. He became obedient. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that verse 9, the name which is above every name, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's his exaltation. His exaltation. Then he comes here to verse 12 and says, So then, Philippians, as a consequence of that, you Philippians, you go on and do the same. Follow that perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ as you work your salvation with fear and trembling. Stay the course no matter how hard it gets. Submit in obedience and humility no matter how great the trial or trials. How bad, however bad the storms of life get. Stay the course. Stay obedient as you work out your salvation, as you follow on in your life of holiness sanctification. And so our sanctification is the consequence of the gospel and model after Christ's humiliation and his glorious exaltation. In every aspect of our pursuit of holiness, Jesus Christ is our model, isn't he? All of the fruit of the Holy Spirit we are to cultivate in our spiritual life, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is found in Christ perfectly. He was the epitome, the embodiment, the personification of meekness itself. Gentleness, patience, 
love, joy, peace, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He is the perfect model of self-control, of meekness, of gentleness. You Philippians model your life of sanctification after him. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter says, you don't have to go to it. I'll read, read it for you and just listen attentively. For this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, listen to this, an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did not sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God, to the one who judges righteously. This is practical as well, right? Can you count how many times you have doubted God? At the very first moment, the trial kind of like rears its head out in your life. The trial presents itself. We complain, we grumble, and then we get depressed, and then we complain some more. But Christ, throughout his trial, throughout his humiliation, all the way to the point of death, throughout his suffering, he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He is the perfect model. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, that wonderful chapter of Romans, Paul says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen to this, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn born among many brothers. The apostle Paul knew that the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel were to be the consequence of holy living for the Philippians, and they are to be to us also this morning as well, for us life, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he knew that Christ was the example. Listen to what he says. Very well-known verse. Be imitators of me as I am, I also am of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Wonderful passage. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the subject and focal point of our gospel. He's the model, the perfect model who alone can transform us as we gaze upon him through the scriptures from one level of glory to the next. That's progression. That's our progressive sanctification. As we learn of Christ, as we learn of his life throughout the Gospels, we go from one level of glory to the next, and to the next, and to the next, and to the next. But our eyes need to stay the perfect model, the perfect example. Right? Key principle number two, sanctification is anchored 
the spiritual bond of love. Sanctification is anchored in the spiritual bond of love. Look at the next two words of verse 12 of chapter 2. The first, first, the first two words were, so then, the, the next two words are, my beloved. We'll stop right there. Those are the next two words. This is what we call evocative or nominative of direct address. It may sound complicated. Here's what it is. For example, if you're writing a letter, you have to address the letter for the person it is intended, right? You're writing a letter to me, say, dear John, writing a letter to Michael, dear Michael, right? So Paul directly addresses the Philippians by using this term, my beloved. That's a term of direct address, a term of endearment, and one that explains a deep bond of love the apostle Paul has for the Philippians. This is so amazing. It's so beautiful to see and to read that and to understand that, that they had such a deep bond of love. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, comma, and then he says it again, my beloved. It is clear that the bond of love that Paul shares with the Philippians was profound. It was deep. It was real. Not something at the surface level, right? You know, these conversations that we have at work. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? And we get our coffee. We go back to our desk. Not, not, that, not that kind of love. Not that kind of relationship. A deep-rooted relationship. I long to see this bond of, bond of love as well here in our church amongst the brothers and sisters here. A love that goes beneath, beneath the surface and penetrates the heart and cracks open the doors built to keep others out of our life. It should not be like that. The Apostle Paul really had a special endearment towards the Philippians. He apparently visited them twice during his third missionary journey. Once at the beginning, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and again near the end, according to Acts 20, verse 6. The Philippians themselves also had, a gener- had generously supported Paul in the past, which Paul noted in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Look with me there. Paul noted their generosity to him. He says, verse 15, I'm reading verse 15. Yep, that's right, verse 15 of chapter 4. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So this is Paul expressing his gratitude towards the generosity that the Philippians showed him. Nobody else showed that kind of generosity towards Paul but the Philippians. It's also been to the Philippians based on the language and the tone of the epistle like a loving and caring father in the faith, if you will. Always praying, always inquiring of them and interceding before the Lord for the Philippians in prayer. Here's what it says in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. I'll just read it for you. Follow along. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This is not a stranger writing from a distance to people that he does not know. 
On the contrary, he loves, he knows them and loves them intimately and dearly. And he's expressing a, prof, a profound joy throughout the epistle for the Philippians. Not only for their generosity, but primarily for their continuous faithfulness of the preaching of the gospel and their growth in the faith. We see in chapter 1, verse 25, where Paul is hard, hard-pressed between the desire to, to depart and be with the Lord or to remain on in the flesh for the sake of the Philippians. He says in verse 25 of chapter 1, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, goes again with that theme of joy. Paul says, fulfill my joy. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But even if, we just read it, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy. Verse 18, And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So we see this overarching theme of joy being repeated throughout the epistle, which is indicative of a deep bond between Paul and the Philippians. He did not write like that. To the Corinthians, I guarantee you that. All he said to the Corinthians, don't you know? Ye, ye, uh, ye know not, or do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? He didn't write like that to the Corinthians. But to the Philippians, he wrote with a heart filled with joy. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my beloved, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, loved and long, listen to this, my joy in my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. If there was something besides the salvation and hope that Paul had in Christ that made his joy, it was the Philippian church. The Philippians were the joy of the apostle, the crown of the apostle. It is crystal clear to them that Paul loves them. It's clear it's clear when somebody loves us, it's pretty clear in their actions, right? In their words, their tone with us. It's pretty clear. It was crystal clear to them that Paul loves them. And Paul had himself, he had to reassure them of that love because he's going to exhort them to obedience. He doesn't just whack them across the face. You do this or you do that. He just tells them, in a way, what I'm going to tell you is coming from a place of deep love. So Paul did that. So the apostle had to assure them that this is coming from a place of relationship of deep love. And in fact, if the Philippians had to continue to be the subject of deep joy to the apostle, if they had to continue to be the crown of the apostle, then they had, they had to follow through with the command of living a life worthy, worthy of the manner with which they have been called and known in Christ. A disciplined and holy life. This is really a spiritual father in the faith, encouraging and pleading with the spiritual children to make his joy complete by dedicating their Christian life to holiness. Do not love the things in the world, nor have any, any affinity for this crooked and perverse generation. The term beloved is used repeatedly to express, repeatedly throughout scripture, to express God the Father's infinite affection for Jesus Christ, his beloved Son. Now, having been adopted in the family of God and made co-heirs with Christ, the Philippians, not only, they not only, they are not only beloved by Paul, but they're also, and more importantly, beloved by God the Father. So are you 
And so are, so is myself. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Say it again. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As a result of that work of as a result of that work of salvation, as a result of you being chosen by God, beloved by God, as a result of that, you Philippians, work out your salvation. You're not only my beloved, you're also God's beloved because you have been adopted in the family of God by the redemption you have in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? In other words, our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness, must be grounded in a bond of love through faith, not for a person, through faith in Christ. That pursuit of holy living is the fruit of that bond of love. It is the fruit of our salvation. Not because of it, but the fruit of it. Few, on the one hand, think that pursuing holiness will somehow gain God's favor, then you're really hopping on a hamster wheel. It doesn't matter if you spin 100 miles an hour, you're going to be in one spot. Your effort, your ritualistic endeavors can never grant you any favor with God. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like that in terms of our justification. Nor does it work like that in terms of our sanctification. Remember what Louis Burkhoff said? Our justification leads right on to our sanctification. On the other hand, when we pursue holiness, because it is the result of a transformed life, when we pursue it with that understanding, knowing that it is the result of a, of a transformed life, the fruit of a life that has a spiritual bond of love with God, as is adopted children by faith in Christ, then we're on the right track. We are beloved of God, co-heirs of Christ, with an eternal and holy hope. So act like that. So live like that. So think like that. So behave as such and commit our life to that by virtue of our redemption. And all of that is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we move on to our third key principle that we find in this text. Principle number three. Sanctification is, mar- is marked by active and consistent obedience. And I'll read it again. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. We want to focus on just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This, this is obviously not an obedience based on when people are looking at us, right? When people are looking at me or when I'm in the church. As soon as I go home, I go back to my sinful life of laziness, sloth, and every other deed I indulge in since no one is looking. My behavior amongst Christians and non-Christians is night and day. The way I speak here in the church and the way I speak here uh, over at my work site or work job or with people I meet on the bus, 
who don't, don't know anything about me, it's very different. I act like a saint here, and out there I live like a devil. I start to sound like Paul Washer a little bit, so, but you get the point. <laughs> this is not a show where we put on our best suit on. We put on our best suit and showcase our quote-unquote spirituality before the elders and others and other brothers and sisters within the church. All the while, we're only seeking for human approval, men's approval. When our heart, deeply in our heart, we don't mean any of it. It's just a show. Brothers and sisters, if our Christian life is characterized by what I just described, and possibly even worse than that, then we have some serious problems to deal with. Look at the text. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, not much now, but now much more in my absence. Just as you have always obeyed, the obedience was constant. It was steady and active. It wasn't by no means a let go and let God type of deal, something that they did by happenstance. If I happen to obey God this week, then glory to God. If I don't, then oh, I guess it is what it is. This is not how the Philippians obeyed. The obedience Paul subjects his body to is in a way of violent obedience that he doesn't find so that he doesn't find himself disqualified after preaching the gospel. I think the Philippians were kind of like that too, right? This is how the Philippians obeyed. Now the phrase, you have always obeyed, is in what they call in Harris indicative, active. That means, I know it's a lot, it simply means to listen attentively, to heed I like that word, or conform to a command authority, to take shape when it comes to that command, to conform to a command. It's like you're in the military and you have your, you have your, your orders and you just conform to that order. It's like you're programmed almost like a robot. So the Philippians really conform their lives to the command that they have received from Paul. We already saw that exact command in chapter 1, verse 27. We read it before. I'll just go over it again. Only live, that's a command, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This is the command for them to remain steadfast, immovable, and live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, gospel-driven lives. Now, it's into this. Even though they have always obeyed, there's always the danger of temptation, right? Which every believer faces and deals with, and also the danger of familiarity with the things of God, which will inevitably breed content, where you develop this sense of apathy towards your med- meditation, your prayer life decreases, you stop reading your Bible because it's all too familiar, you know? You might even stop attending Bible study or even come to church altogether. I just, I know that stuff. 
So Paul understood this danger and also knows that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a warring lion seeking someone to devour. As such, Paul encourages them to actively and consistently obey and to obey much more during his absence. So sanctification, brothers and sisters, is not a show we put on to get approval of our senior pastor or the elders and brothers and sisters here and all the while we live like devils. On the contrary, it's an active and consistent pursuit of spiritual obedience, both publicly and privately. Both publicly and privately. It goes all the way to the intent in the mind, the thoughts, the words that we speak. That's how private it gets. And now on to the fourth and final key principle we see in this text, principle number four, sanctification is based upon rigorous effort. Sanctification is based upon rigorous effort. Meticulous effort, or another synonym is thorough effort. You know when somebody is very thorough at their work? They dot every I, and they cross every T, they turn every stone, they proofread and reproofread and get a second person to do quality assurance and quality control, and they go over it again before it goes out to the client. Thorough type of work. We ought to be that way with our life of sanctification. It is based upon rigorous, meticulous, thorough effort. Now we come to the most important part of the passage, and we're not going to spend much time there because we already talked about what work out your salvation and trembling doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean we are to work for or work at or work up to our salvation. Let me stop right here and just, let me just read the passage again. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, that's the part we're on, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So like I said, it doesn't mean we are to work at, work for, or work up to our salvation. We already talked about the spiritual impossibility of that at the beginning of the sermon. The spiritually bankrupt sinner is dead in his sin. As Vodibakum says, dead men don't grab. Dead men don't move. Dead men don't give the life to Jesus. Dead men don't get on the bus and grab a coffee out from Starbucks. Dead men don't do that. You know what they do? They remain still and dead. That's what they do. So the spiritually bankrupt sinner is dead in his sin and dead men don't grab. Let's, let's take a look at it. I, I just don't want to say that to you so that you think I'm just probably talking about it. Uh, let's see. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at it real quick. Starting at verse 1. And there it is. And you were dead, not partially dead, not 90% dead, 100% dead, in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. And because you are dead in your sins, and these are the things that you do, in which you formerly walked according to the, cur- to the course of this world, that's what dead men do. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience, that's what dead men do. 
They have nothing to do with the things of God. Among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves because we at one point were also dead. So that was our conduct. In the lust of our flesh, that's what dead men do. Doing the desires of the flesh, that is what dead men do. Okay, you get the point. And of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our transgressions, he made us, that's a, that's, a, that's a passive tense, he made us, we didn't make ourselves, God made us alive together with Christ. You have been saved. So the sinner is utterly incapable by any stretch of the imagination save himself. It is impossible. I hope we all get that. I hope we're all on the same page here. He cannot. Utterly incapable by any stretch of the imagination. Now, what does it mean to work out your salvation? We know what it doesn't mean. Now, what does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> to work out is a, present is a present tense imperative, which means is a command that has continual emphasis, like this. Like, keep on continually making the effort. Keep on continually doing the work. Keep on continually laboring. Keep on continually working out your salvation. It is derived from the strong Greek word hergazomai, pronounced hergazomai, try to get the pronunciation really right, which means to work, to labor, to do work. The verb, as far as, un as I understand it, based on the Greek lexicon, always means to work fully. By implication, to finish or to fashion. In other words, it means to bring something to fulfillment, to fullness or completion. And what he is saying in this verse, the salvation that is in you needs to be brought out all the way to its fulfillment, all the way to its fullness. It is already in you, deposited in you. You just need to bring it out. You know, not working for that salvation that is already in you, you have to bring it out, to bring it to uh, fullness. It really is a command for sustained effort and diligence in working out what has already been planted within. You see, all the verbs are in passive tense. What has already been planted within. Been planted within by whom? By God. This day-to-day -day holy living, this is day-to-day -day holy living, rather, I am to be committed to the process of my salvation coming to the outside. In a sense that it's manifest in my conduct. Before I come to Christ, right, I used to curse a lot. Once I come to Christ, Christ put this holy language in me. Now I see day by day, as I'm looking at Christ in the scriptures, and studying the scriptures, and reading my mind, and I'm bringing out, right, I'm killing the old man and putting on the new man. I'm bringing out this new language of heaven, the sweet language of fellowship. I am bringing it out. And then when people look at me, they say, what happened to him? Because it's coming out. I'm becoming something else. But it's not passive. It is active. It is to be consistent. So in the sense that it's manifest in my conduct, my behavior, 
my language, my thinking, my intentions, and my thoughts. If I, if I was a man used to deal with numbers, financial numbers, you know, maybe I probably was known as someone who used to turn one zero into nine zeros. And now people come to me, hey, can we turn this one zero into nine zeros? And I'm like, I can't do it, man. I just can't. Right? Maybe after my salvation, I probably did it once. Then as I come to understand Christ more and more, and now I'm like, no, this behavior, that's not me. That's not who God made me. That new creation that God created, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. This new creation cannot act like that, cannot think like that. His thoughts cannot be like that. I can no longer then turn this one zero into nine anymore. But this is done not passively, just sitting down, watching Netflix, and waiting for it to happen. It needs to be done in consistent prayer, consistent meditation, reading our Bible, praying to God. We are working it out. Even Paul tells the Corinthians, in view of this, the Christian life, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24. I don't know if I'm going to get to it. I have it here. Okay, I'll read it for you. Paul says, Do you not know that those who won in a race all won, but only one receives the prize? One in such a way that you may win. Now, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they, uh, they then, they, they then do it to receive a corruptible crown. But we, on the other hand, an incorruptible crown. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The verb I discipline in verse 27, here is a compound Greek word that literally means to hit under the eye, to give like giving someone a black eye. This is serious discipline. That's what he does to his body. Not an aimless pursuit or random combat or race that the believer gets into. We are, to, we are in it to win it. And our reward is an incorruptible one. Hebrews 12, 14 commands us to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 teaches us to present your, our bodies, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's in order. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is. That which is good and pleasing and perfect. It is a constant, meticulous, rigorous pursuit of sanctification. That pursuit affects the whole man. His body, his soul, his intellect, his affections and will. Kind of started with Louis Berkhoff. We'll finish with him. Louis Berkhoff says, Because sanctification takes place in the inner man, inner life of man, in the heart, and this cannot be changed without changing the whole organism of man. If the inner man is changed, there is bound to be changed also in the periphery of life. Listen to what First Thessalonians 5.23 says to clarify that thought. Now, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit 
and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since the body comes into consideration here as the organ or instrument of the sinful soul, through which the sinful inclinations and habits and passions express themselves, hence why Paul gives it a black eye, as we read earlier. He disciplined his body. He made it his slave. Listen to Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. 1 Corinthians 2.15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it be never. This sanctification affects, also affects the power of faculties of the soul, such as the understanding, according to Jeremiah 31, verse 34, the passions, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, the conscience, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 15, and the will, according to Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, verses 25 to 27. I'll read that for you. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I think that's our last passage for today. Then... God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I want you to follow the, the verb, right, the subject. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Finally, you see that although, and to make that clear, the believer, we are to strive to discipline our body by making it our slave. We are to renew our mind. We are to go through this rigorous effort. All of that work all of that work that we do, it is all by God. The believer simply cooperates. Louis Burkhoff says, does that, not mean, does, does that mean that cooperation, does, does that mean that we are independent agents in work where God is on one side, is working, and we are on the other side working out our sanctification so as to make it partly the work of God and partly the work of men? That God affects the work in part through the instrument, instrumentality of men as a rational being, by requiring of, his, of him pray, prayerful and intelligent cooperation with the Spirit. That's not, that's not the case. Berkhoff says, and many people have fallen into this error. In reading many commentaries and listening to sermons, preparing for this, and I've seen people falling into that error, showing men as this agent working with God, but independent from God. Berkhoff is telling us not to, not to do it like that, not to think of it that, like that. Even some respected theologian have a sort of a skewed view of the will of the believer in sanctification. Without studying scripture systematically, you will inevitably fall into the pitfalls where men does 50% and God does the other 50%. Louis Berkhoff says what that means, that cooperation, listen very carefully, that men must cooperate with the Spirit of God follows. Number one, from repeated warnings against evil and temptation, which clearly imply that men must be active in avoiding the pitfalls of life, the sinful pitfall of life. And secondly, 
from the constant exhortations to holy living. These imply that the believer must diligently in the employment of the means at his command for the moral and spiritual improvement of his life. That's what that means. Men simply must cooperate by avoiding the pitfalls of life, the temptations of life, and in take heed to the exhortations. Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you, you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. And all of that is possible because the God who says in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to, my ju- to do my judgments. That God actually brought that promise to fruition by giving us his spirit as an engagement ring, a seal of our salvation. He's the one who empowers us, empowers our life to holy living. Romans 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you belong to Christ, his spirit is in you. In conclusion, brothers and sisters at Cross Life, remember that our sanctification is the consequence of the gospel, the glorious gospel, the fruit of a spiritual bond of love, having been grafted in the, in the family of God and now being God's beloved as well, and also an act of consistent obedience, not when we're here only or so that people could see us, but both public and privately. And lastly, it is based upon rigorous effort on the part of the believer with God at the basis of it, working monergistically in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're at time, <laughs> and we'll leave verse 13 for Friday, December 8th. Friday, December 8th. But before we end, I want to ask you, though, is God working in you this morning? Is God at work in you today? Are the members of your body, are they for holiness? Are you pursuing righteousness? Or the sinful passions of your heart? Are you rigorously pursuing after Christ to be conformed to his life, conformed to his image? If not, then you might be in danger of not seeing the Lord. But glory be to him, for he gave us his son who died on the cross, so that whosoever, whoever believes in him would not perish, but be set apart for eternal life. So be found in him and live a sanctified life worthy of the gospel and the call with which we have been called. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Know that as your son says, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in John 17, he asked you to sanctify his disciples, his beloved, his chosen one, by your truth 
and your word is truth, Lord. We don't know the hearts of anyone here. We don't know who's pretending or who's not. We don't know who's living holy, but you and your spirit knows. And we don't want to be those to whom you say, Father, depart from me, from, for I never knew you. You were just pretending. You're a pretender. We want to be those who obey, whether in the absence of other Christians or in the presence of other Christians. We want you to be glorified in our behavior and our thoughts. We just want to live holy and sanctified life, empowered by your Spirit. May it be so for all of us here, Father. In your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.